welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in 1 John, breaking into chapter 2, this marvelous passage about the hearing room of heaven, the believer's sins, and the victory of Jesus. It's a great text. So hear with me this marvelous, marvelous word of God. John writes, my little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's amazing word filled with saving truth. May we hear it well. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, last time we uh, were in this epistle together, I began with a question, and that was, Christian, what do you do when you sin? And the reason I asked that question is because what John is writing here is part of a, a movement of thought that he had in this epistle that went from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through this text today, chapter 2, verse 2. It's all about grappling with sin as a Christian and what God says about it, how we fool ourselves about it, and what He has provided for it. His call is for these people to live as true believers and to walk in the light as God is in the light. And so it's all about the issue of handling our obedience to the Lord. Now, I asked you that question, not only because it's the theme of his writing in this section, uh, but because it's, it's the question that every believer has to deal with in terms of their personal walk with God. The, the healthy ways to answer the question lead you to him. Unhealthy ways lead you further into sin. If you look back at the passage, you won't see it on the, on the, the screen, but just if you look at your Bibles in chapter 1, Verse 5, we began with a beautiful portrait of what holiness is, and we saw that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. In other words, He is pure holiness, pure goodness, and He's the standard. And He wants us, He created us in part to reflect His glory. And so that's His will for our lives. But then verse 6 all the way through verse 10 showed us some broken pathways that we often follow when we sin, but we don't deal with it well. There's the pathway of ignoring it in, in, in verse 6, of actually living a double life and pretending that sin is, is not a real big issue in my life. And the solution to that is verse 7. No, come out and be honest with God about it. Walk in the light and bring your, your full life into, into the light of His truth. 
Sometimes we don't ignore, but we rationalize. And that was verse 8, where we say we have no sin. In other words, it's been pointed out to us, but we downplay it. We rationalize it. We say that what some might say would be sin for us is not really sin at all. We, we become our own standard. And the way out of that is in verse 9. He says, no, confess, which means say the same thing as God about your sins. Be honest before him and accept what he says about your behavior, not what you wish was true about your behavior. And when you do that, there's a cleansing from all unrighteousness that you can taste. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Whatever you do, he says, don't slip into the great error of verse 10, where you say you've never sinned, that sin is not even a reality, that you're either perfect because of some spiritual work in your life, or that people are not sinners by nature, and you fool yourself about the very nature of how a person can come to Christ. That's making God a liar, and it's possible that you don't even know him, and his word is not in you. So very, very serious pathways that are broken. So that's why I've called this section of teachings honest to God, because that's really the key when you fall in sin, is to be honest with God about it. You break your pathways when you're less than honest. So when we do this and we walk with God in honesty, we experience his cleansing, verse 9, and we we, we have that stain in our eyes of our, our sin taken away afresh by the blood of Christ. And we can go on in honest fellowship. So that's the teaching that we went over the last two weeks about our side of dealing with sin. But let me, and let me ask you another question as I begin this final segment, because his thought really doesn't end. The chapter break there is in English, but not in the Greek. From chapter 1, verse 10, his thought continues all the way through chapter 2 into the two verses I just read to, read to you. So as we look at the last two verses today, let me begin with a different question. And that is, have you ever wondered what happens on God's side when you sin? We've just spent a couple weeks talking about how we mishandle sin on our side of the relationship. But have you ever wondered what happens on God's side when you sin? What happens in God's very presence when you sin? What happens in the throne room of heaven when you sin? Because God is omniscient. He knows all things at all times. And He knows everything about our actions and our thoughts and our words. What do you think God does when you sin? And I've I've met Christians over the many years of my ministry, and they have different responses to that question, and a lot of them are broken too. I meet Christians who believe that God becomes immediately angry, and he stays in that, that place of anger until you figure out what to do to make it right with him. I've met others who believe that when, when certain sins are committed, God turns away from you. He, he, he begins to distance himself in a relationship, maybe like they experienced through people in their life as they were growing up. I don't know, but it seems to be a common idea that God has turned away from me during this season where I'm struggling with this. Others take it further and believe that when they sin, God punishes them. They look at events in their life or things that don't happen, and they believe that they're under the punishing hand of God. And finally, some go even further than that and believe that certain sins in certain ways cause them to be rejected by God all over again. I've known people that have abandoned their faith walk 
for long periods of time out of a false accusation from the enemy that God has rejected them all over again because of falling into a certain sin. Well, I'll give part of this message away. All four of those understandings are false. And I'm going to talk to you instead about a marvelous conversation, if you will, that takes place in heaven when we sin that I believe will give you some freedom. What is happening on God's side when we sin? What does God do when we sin? We're going to look at this beautiful picture today, and it's a picture that's built around a a word that you never hear in human conversations, but you see it in the Word of God. It's in verse 2, the fact that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Hold on for some great discoveries. This is a portrait of how God responds with mighty grace when we fall. Now, to fully understand and see the picture, uh, you need to understand five things. And you'll see them come right out of these two verses. I'm just going to walk through them, and you'll see them just in phrases up on the screen or on your notes. And we're going to kind of bring this to light together. The first thing you need to understand to fully understand how God deals with our sin is this. Number one, you need to understand that God's desire is for believers to sin against him less and reflect him more as they grow. Now, you'll notice I have ellipses after most of these because this is kind of an ongoing set of connected thoughts, these five thoughts that I'm going to bring to you out of the passage But God's desire, as we begin this whole exploration, is for believers to sin against him less and reflect him more as they grow. And I I brought this out to you last week when I quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, where the Bible says that believers are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. And I brought this principle out, and and a number of people interacted with me over the last week, and they said, you know, I I see immediately that that's true, but you'd be amazed how little it's ever been brought out in preaching that I've listened to. I really appreciate you reminding me that God wants the trajectory of my life to to be one of becoming more like his son and more holy. I'm supposed to take sin seriously like that. And a number of you just really appreciated me and thanked me for it. It was almost as if that text had hardly ever been quoted to you. But that's the reality. You've been saved to grow in likeness to Jesus, and it's the normal Christian life to do that. That's another thing that's been thrown out of our Christian consciousness these days, out of some desire never for you to taste a twinge of guilt or a twinge of obligation to become more like Christ's Son. We take out the standard altogether, and that's not what the Bible does. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, one of my favorite texts as I've grown as a believer talks about the fact that I perfect holiness in the fear of God by spending time in his wonderful presence through the light of his word. And his, his word speaks to my new mind, which is in the new man that the spirit has created in me. The new me responds to that and begins to reflect his son in greater degrees in my life. That's the normal Christian life. Second Corinthians 3.18 talks about it. 
It says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. That's Christian growth. We use a theological word, sanctification, to talk about it. It's becoming more like Christ in my character. It's beholding the glory of the Lord through the word of God as it reveals him. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, right there at the end of the verse, he stirs you to see areas of your life that he wants you to put under his lordship. And as you do, you begin to obey him. And when you obey him, you reflect him. And as that happens, you're, you're transformed into the same image. Whose image? The image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not physically, but in your character, in who you are. You become more Christ-like. That's the vision that God has for us as believers. It's the normal Christian life. Now, where do I see this in our text? If you go to 1 John, he begins and he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There it is. There's the principle. God's desire is for believers to sin against him less and reflect him more as they grow. That's a a three or four word phrase that captures an entire part of the Bible, Romans chapter six through chapter eight, where we find out that we have new power now that Christ dwells within us to say no to sin and yes to Christ. You may not even be aware of that in your life as a Christian. You have a brand new resurrection power to walk in obedience and not to sin. Again, some, for some folks, the, the windows just brightened up when I taught this last week, and I'm so grateful. John says his desire is that you may not sin. So the Bible is telling us here we can have victory over sin. We can stand against temptation. We can build godly habits. We can can increase our holiness. We can perfect holiness in the fear of God. Now, I didn't say become perfect. I said perfect. The Greek word means to take you to higher levels of maturity and to your purpose. And so we can do that lifelong until we see Jesus. That's what we are to do. And John says, I've written everything in the first chapter so that you may know how not to sin. And it's interesting, the chapter talks about not only not sinning in in the the, the verses we studied last time, but he also has shown us the way in which we can rationalize our sin. And he wants that off the table too. He says, you are to, to grow in holiness and be honest with God when you do fall and be restored again quickly. But today in our age, we've, we've developed an abuse of the grace of the cross, I think out of a desire not to offend, to attract rather to, to, than to build people. And we've disconnected people from we've disconnected people's salvation experience with the Lord with that growing desire to be like Him. We've we've contextualized it and made it so that people don't understand you were saved to become like Him. One commentator I read about it this week put it this way out of his commentary. What John means in verse 1 of chapter 2 is, I'm writing these things so you won't regard sin as an inevitable part of the Christian life, and so you won't presume on Christian liberty by thinking that sin is no big deal. See, that's what chapter 1 was about. People ignoring their sin, saying, well, I just sin. It's me. It's who I am. I can't get any better. But God knows that and understands it. Well, God has forgiven it. 
But no, he's not going to let you be completely bound up in sin that hurts your life and hurts others and, and robs him of his glory and just say, that's the way you are. That makes your psychology and your temperament and your weaknesses and your problems greater than the power of the Lord of the universe. Do you understand that? It's absurd on its face. He says, don't ignore your sin. Don't live a double life. Don't rationalize your sin like in verse 8. And don't say that it's not a problem for you at all like in verse 10. No, don't presume these things. He goes on, this commentator, and writes, the point is our goal should be to live day by day without committing sin in thought, word, or deed. A tall order to be sure. Certainly Christians ought to be people, listen to this, who sin less after they are saved than they did before they were saved. Now you say, well, that's so obvious. Not in our generation it isn't. Think a little bit about what we allow to go unspoken to in the lives of so many believers around us. Think about what we allow people to live like without ever speaking in love into their lives. It's astounding what gets gets accepted in the lives of professing Christians today. He says Christians ought to be people who sin less after they are saved than they did before they were saved. And then this is a great statement. The trajectory of our lives should be toward holiness and away from sin. There it is. That's what he's saying here. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John says, little children, my desire is that you grow and become strong in your faith and you sin less all the time. Sin is a serious thing in your lives. Don't take it lightly. Now that's his, his ideal for the believers. Oh, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And yet then the next phrase brings in some reality, doesn't it? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That brings us to the second understanding. Yes, God's desire is that you grow in obedience and, and, and sin is, is more and more defeated in your life. But secondly, all believers will still struggle with sin until the moment they see Jesus. Isn't that the truth? Now I probably get a lot more hands raised saying, now you're talking about my world. It's everybody's world. But if anyone does sin, so God's overwhelming desire is that we grow in victory over sin, but life's reality because of the flesh that's still with us and the world around us and the devil against us is that we are going to battle with sin. And in fact, as we conquer certain areas in our life, maybe you found this out as a growing Christian, then the Holy Spirit reveals other areas of your life that he now wants to press into and get you uh, walking in obedience in that because you're now maturing as a believer, you didn't even see those were issues. Uh, years ago in your Christian life. Any of you experienced this? It's that, that widening arc of light that comes. The more words you know, the more the Spirit has given freedom in your life, and, and the more you humble yourself under the hand of God, and you say, I want to reflect your Son more and more, Lord. The light of, of His revelation just shines on more areas of your life, your character, your integrity, everything. And he takes you to higher levels of awareness and he challenges you to a higher level of surrender so that you can be even more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it's both a battle and a privilege, isn't it? 
But he says, sin is a lifelong battle. I write that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. And so you see, he brings the reality in that it's always a struggle. It's interesting in the Greek language, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of shades of meaning that just amplify things. And we have basically one word, if, and and they, the Greeks had three different conditions. You've probably heard this taught by different pastors. There's three different ways in which they could phrase or use the Greek construction to talk about possibilities. And this is a third class condition with the subjunctive. Now, all of that you can just wipe out of your mind, but basically it means that it implies the heavy possibility that he says, if, and it's going to happen. <laughs> you could translate this in our, in our expanded English, but if, and if anyone does sin, and you will. So there's some certainty to it. And I sure appreciate the old apostle. Experience with so many souls over so many years saying, yeah, he sends a battle for all of us, beloved. And I've seen it in my life and I've seen it in so many others. If and you will struggle with sin, oh, this is for you. Now, I can tell you that um, I have met on very rare occasions uh, in, in my Christian ministry and my Christian travels a Christian or two who actually believed that they didn't sin anymore. I can't even recall their names because I became so immediately uninterested in them. <laughs> I like to talk with folks who are in touch with reality. I've met one or two who came from sectic, just, just very bizarre and immature Christian teachings. And, but oh, I've met far more, including this one, that want to please him more, but struggle with sin. It's a paddle as you, as you grow in sanctification. And it's something that's true about everyone. And he says, my little children here, but, but, uh, but it's not just the young believer that struggles with sin. Because in, the, in, in, the, in this phrase here, he says, if anyone does sin, and that opens it up to everybody, doesn't it? So there's no qualifications here. He doesn't qualify. And he's not talking about great sins or little sins. The Greek word hamatano in, in that phrase, if anyone does sin, is, is the classic word which meant to miss the mark. And you've heard this preached by a thousand preachers. The, the word came from the archery of the time in the Greco-Roman world. And when you, you shot an arrow at the target, if you miss the bullseye, by, by just a fraction, you, you, you didn't score. They didn't have the concentric circles. They just had one red dot. And that arrow had to hit that red dot. And if it didn't, the scorekeeper would raise a flag and he would call out hamartano or hamartia, which means missing the mark. So you either hit it or you didn't. So sin is essentially anything that doesn't hit the mark of God's righteousness. And it can be a big thing. It can be a small thing. It can be a, uh, an attitude issue or it can be an action issue. It can be actual adultery or just a sexual thought. It can be horrendous murder or it can be hourly anger. It can be a multitude of things. And so he covers everything that we struggle with. And I'm so glad because I may not struggle with certain things that just might blow your mind, but there's other things that are chronic in my life that, that break my heart that may, may would not even be a big deal to you. Well, it's all to the Lord. I'm not here to live my Christian life to please you or impress you either, but I'm here to be in, in, in pleasing to him. 
So he says, God is aware of all those aspects of your life. And he knows that it's, there are times and they will happen when you will sin. And he doesn't qualify it as big sins or small sins. It's all there. And he doesn't qualify the sinner either. He doesn't say, now, but, if, but some of us will sin. He doesn't say, I, I'm writing that you may not sin, but some of us will. And he talks about people other than himself. He puts himself in there. If anyone sins and it will happen. So it's all of us. It's the spiritually immature or it's the spiritually together. How many people have you met that are astoundingly mature? And, and one of the great threats in their life is that they're so godly and they're so together and they're so disciplined and they're so experienced and so knowledgeable and so trusted that the, the greatest temptation in their life is self-confidence, spiritual confidence. Oh, you can fall in a heartbeat. I don't care how mature, how godly, how advanced, how together, how scripturally knowledgeable you are, my dear friend, because the tempter knows how to move on your life. They're greatly mature or the deeply immature, the unusually broken or the surprisingly together. We're all in this passage. And so we all will have moments where we fall in sin before our Lord. Now we've already talked about how to handle that on our side, but now he shifts and he begins to deal with what happens with what happens in, on God's side, in God's very presence when sin occurs. And now he moves into this language of an advocate with the Father. I believe, along with Bible commentators over the years who've looked at this passage, I believe that John is drawing and putting forth for us the elements of a drama that happened in the very presence of God. Commentators over the ages have called this a courtroom drama in heaven. You've heard me refer to it. Jesus Christ, the advocate, oh, that one word, advocate, that one phrase, advocate with the Father, opens up a whole image. It does for me when I look at it. Let me identify, as others have over the ages, how this courtroom drama might take place. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You wouldn't need an advocate if you didn't have an accuser. Let me repeat that. You wouldn't need an advocate if you didn't have an accuser. I believe what is being talked about here is a courtroom drama. The very word advocate could have been used in the Greco-Roman time to talk about a defense attorney. It is the word parakaleo, or, and, and, and it comes from the verb parakaleo, which means to call someone, along, someone alongside to defend you, to help you. It could properly be translated a defense attorney. Here's what I think John is is referring to, and later in Revelation, he's, well, I'm going to show you in just a minute, where he, I think, completes the imagery. I think John is talking here about the fact that in the heavenly throne room, it's like a courtroom setting. There is a judge. Who would the judge be? God the Father. There is a prosecutor. Who would that be? We're going to find out in a minute. That's Satan himself from Revelation 12. I'll show you. 
There is a defense attorney, an advocate, one called alongside to help. Who's that? Well, we see it here. There's an advocate with you, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that presumes that there must be a defendant. Well, it's already in the text. We have an advocate. Who are the defendants? Believers. So this is all about what happens in that holy space of God's throne room. Let me ask you, where does, where does God's authority dwell? Where does God dwell in authority? You say, well, God is spirit. He's everywhere at once all at the same time. Yes, that's true. But it seems to tell us in the testimony of scripture that there is a literal space. There is a throne room of God. There is a throne room of God where God in, in, in his authoritative presence, though he is spirit, seems to dwell where the Father dwells upon the throne. It is a throne room. Paul said it's in the third heaven. The Old Testament prophets said it's in a part of, of, uh, of spiritual space called the sides of the north. I believe it's a real place. I believe it's in existence and has been from eternity past. There is a throne there. The Father sits upon it. Though he is spirit, his presence is somehow manifested there, and he is there in authority over all that he's created. The Bible tells me that when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the book of Hebrews tells me that he walked into that great heavenly throne room with his great sacrifice now completed to redeem you and me, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And the Bible tells me he is there today. He's there in his resurrected, glorified body. This will blow your mind. He's physically there as the God-man with his wounds still fresh, showing that he's paid my price. And he is there interceding for me, speaking to the Father about me and about you. He ever lives to make intercession for you, the Bible says. That's where he is. So the Father in his authority on the great throne in that very real place in the third heaven, the Lord Jesus having sat down at the right hand of the Father to show that his sacrifice for you is complete, interceding for you and being there for you, and the Holy Spirit invisibly orchestrating and empowering the praise and adoration of myriads of angels that constantly surround that throne and hover over it calling out glory, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's the throne room of heaven. As holy, however, as that place is, into that holy space, an accuser is regularly allowed to enter. Who would that accuser be? The devil himself. How do I know this? Go back to Revelation chapter 12. Satan was cast out of the special presence of God and with no privilege of honor any longer when he rebelled eons ago. Before Adam and Eve fell under his tempting, Satan fell first. Evil was found in him, the scripture says. And the great drama began. He was thrown out of the very special presence of God. But according to the book of Job and according to the book of Revelation, he is still allowed limited access to come near the throne of God in a limited way. And he brings accusations against God's people, doesn't he? The whole book of Job is built around that great courtroom drama. 
where the, the, the devil, having roamed the earth, comes into the presence of God and accuses Job with false accusations, and that great drama of that book unfolds. Well, he still is able to do that today. And Revelation chapter 12 tells us that he is going to be able to do that until halfway through the tribulation. And after the seventh trumpet has blown and the, the judgments have fallen on the earth to the halfway point, there is going to arise a war in heaven. Revelation 12, 7, please. Now war arose in heaven. This is yet to happen. This is yet into the future. But John was given a vision of it, and he saw it as though it was happening in real time. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, the demons, fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That is going to happen halfway through the tribulation period yet to come. He will finally be thrown out of the, the, the near presence of God. He will be thrown out of heaven itself, this devil and his angels, and they will be limited to the earth, and that's why the, inten the intensity of the tribulation ratchets up at that point, because the devil is confined to the earth, he's filled with rage, and he knows there's only three and a half years left before he faces his judgment and the lake of fire forever. And so his rage penetrates the planet. Now, before that time, however, it appears that he still has limited access and he enters into the presence of God. And look at this verse. He is the accuser of our brothers, of the believers, and he accuses us day and night before God. So you take that passage and you put it with John's language here in 1 John, and many commentators, including this one, believe John is saying there is a a great drama in heaven when the believer falls in sin. There is the believer as the defendant, and there is the devil accusing him. That's the setting. I hope you see it. The devil, though cast out originally when he sinned, still has access even now, for now, until the middle of the tribulation. And so John is talking about what happens in the real time, in a real place, and the devil relentlessly accuses you of your sins and he seeks to bring the Father's justice down on you. And he quotes scripture in the face of the Father over what you've done and he demands that you be sent to hell anyway. So the, the whole context here shifts. So let me give you the third understanding then. God's desire is that we don't sin, that we grow in holiness, but we all know that we're going to have, secondly, a battle with sin until we see Jesus. Here's the third one. When we do sin, Satan accuses us before the Father. Go back to 1 John 2. 
There, there's the need for an advocate, which John seems to imply, imply in, in, involves an accuser who brings out the details of our sin, who quotes the, the, the nuances of God's law, and who demands, who demands that God punish you all over again, that he send you to hell for what you've done. So we sin. The accuser arrives in the throne room with all the details. But then it's as if God, the judge, says, is there anyone for the defense? And up steps the Lord Jesus and says, yes, your honor, Jesus Christ, the righteous for the defense. And that's what he's talking about here. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, an advocate, parakletos, one called alongside to help. You could probably look at that and say a defense attorney, somebody who's called to defend you. So this is the courtroom, God the Father sitting on the bench, as it were, on the throne, the fully just ruler of the universe. You, you're there by accusation. You're not there physically, but your name is on the docket. You're being tried in absentia over the sin in your life, that day, that moment, whatever the, de the, the devil has desired to bring. And now, you're kind of a unique defendant in one sense for two reasons. Number one, you are guilty. <laughs> so many people say they're not. Well, we know that you are. And in fact, you confessed it to your defense attorney earlier. You confessed your guilt when you met him as your savior. Whether you were six or 60, you confessed it all. And you may have confessed it all over to him again just before you walked into the courtroom. I did it. So the defense attorney is defending somebody who's truly guilty who's already confessed it to him. It's kind of a unique context, isn't it? Satan, the accusing prosecutor, is there, and he's the most vicious prosecutor in town. He's relentless. He's got massive abilities to research your life. He's, he's ferociously intelligent and and deeply filled with hatred against you, he wishes to convict you with all of his heart. And he's got all the evidence laid out against you. And it's completely overwhelming. And then there's the judge sitting on the throne. Well, this judge actually wrote the very law you broke. He wrote it and cherishes it. He actually knows all the evidence against you. And he's known for always being just. <laughs> Things aren't looking too good, are they? But there's something else that's unusual about that courtroom. Not only are you fully guilty and you've already confessed to your attorney, not only are you facing the most vicious prosecutor in the universe, and not only has the judge written the very law that you broke, knows very clearly that you broke it and always renders justice, something else is happening, though, and that is that the judge and the defense attorney know each other. <laughs> Amazingly, they're actually family. They go way back. How far back? How does eternity suit you? 
And they are also all-knowing, and they knew that this very moment with this very sin and this very hour with this very accuser was going to happen eons ago before you were even created. And they knew that they would have to render justice over what you had done, but they also wanted to render love. And so together they devised a plan, a great plan in which Jesus Christ the righteous would come and take the penalty for every one of your deeds so that when you face the judge with all the accusations on the table, he would be able to say, oh, Father, I took the wrath for that. This one is blameless. Wow. See, it's all wrapped up in the words. He's an advocate. He's one who stands in our defense. And there are two things that are true about him. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. I told you we'd get to this word. It's a biblical word. Propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Let me borrow some words from a commentator again to kind of make sure you get all the details. Listen. To explain the meaning of propitiation, think with me about four words. Wrath, justice, holiness, and love. Those words describe four characteristics of God. True? Have you ever wondered why God could not just wave his magic wand and say, all your sins are forgiven? So many people wonder that. I have many people mock the God of the Bible saying, if I were God, I would just forgive everybody. Well, you've never tasted evil, friend, because I don't want you to my God. But you ever wondered why God could just not wave a magic wand and just say, all your sins are forgiven. Be the pushover judge. This author says, well, God is a God of love, but he is also a God of holiness and justice. Because sin is an affront to God's holy nature, as well as his sovereign rule of the universe. Remember, he wrote the law. He has righteous anger towards sin. Paul summed it up in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. How does God feel about sin? His wrath pours out against it. All sin, great or small. Because he's not only loving, but he's perfectly holy. We just talked about this. Think about the sin problem for a moment then. It's a universal problem. Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all face the wrath of God, don't we? You cannot atone for your sin or forgive yourself for your sins. It's important to know that. If your sins are to be forgiven, someone who is without sin must pay the price for your sin. Our only hope of escape from the just penalty of our sin is if someone who is not himself under that penalty stands in our place as our substitute. And I introduce to you Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, this was the great plan of God from the beginning. You as an unrighteous man or woman, boy or girl, with no, no hope to, to, to get out from under the, the, the weight of your sin, Someone who never tasted sin had to die for you. And that's why Jesus steps up to the great bar of justice and says, I'm Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm the only one in the universe that could have done something about this as the substitute for him. 
There's only one in the entire universe who could do that and only one who did do that. No one other than Jesus Christ could provide the sacrifice. The reason God cannot wave his wand and forgive all our sins and allow everyone into heaven is because sin is real and God is a holy God and his righteous anger stands against all sin and justice must be served in such a way that sin is paid for. Remember I told you last week, there is no such thing as an unpaid for sin going into eternity either in heaven or in hell. In heaven, they're paid for by the Lord Jesus. In hell, they're eternally paid for by people that have rejected what Jesus did. Justice will be served. Now, Jesus paid that price when he died on the cross to satisfy the penalty of the law that God the Father wrote that condemned us. Why did Jesus die in our place as our substitute to deal with our sin penalty? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's why. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen as he finishes. At the cross, God's wrath, love, justice, and holiness met together. All of them met together. He was able to to be that God. God's holiness makes sin an affront to his character and to his universal governance. God's justice demands payment for sin. God's love causes him to love sinners. And because of God's love, he sent his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross for the world's sin. And God's wrath was poured out in judgment upon Jesus, who bore our sin on the cross as our substitute. By his death on the cross for sin, Jesus satisfied the wrath and the justice of God. And that's what the word propitiation means. What does propitiation mean? It means wrath satisfied. That's what it means. Somebody satisfied the wrath of God that you deserved in your place, and that wrath was all poured out till it was exhausted, and there was no more wrath to come for your sin. It was all poured out on Jesus Christ on Calvary, wasn't it? Here's another theological word for you. That means your sin has been expiated. What does that mean? It means the penalty has been removed. There's no more accountability for it. It's been taken to the cross. And God's wrath has been satisfied. So that's kind of a long rendition, but I thought I'd put it into those words for you. <clears throat> so you take a look at your text. And this great drama in the courts Here's how I would put it, and this is understanding four. Jesus advocates for us before the Father. Yes, God's desire is that you walk in holiness. Second, the certainty of life is that you won't. You'll have a battle with it all the way through. There will be times when you sin, and the devil himself will bring that before the throne room of God and accuse you relentlessly and accurately. But Jesus Christ will advocate for you before the Father. And it says he will work and advocate before you every single time. You know, the Bible says in Revelation 12 that he, this this devil right now, ceaselessly accuses the brethren. I don't know how he does it. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. But somehow with his power and with the demons alongside him, He's in the courtroom of heaven a lot. And somehow he has the ability, since he observes everything about your life, and he's almost 
infinitely intelligent to remember every misdeed of your life. He knows the scripture. He knows everything the Bible says ought to be true about your life and isn't. The devil would be a formidable adversary, wouldn't he? I can imagine what it would be like of him accusing me all the time, because I know my sin. I wouldn't be surprised if he's already been there this morning against me. In fact, I'm sure he has. But I kind of wonder what that would have gone like. Forgive me if I put a little human nuance to the description, but maybe it went like this. God the Father on the throne. Satan rushing into the courtroom, out of breath and ready to take me out. Your Honor, Your Honor, hearing please. Hearing. And the Father turns to the Lord Jesus who is seated on His right hand and says He's back again. (laughs) What's on the docket today? Angel hands him the court docket. More accusations against Joe Persh. Okay, what have you got this time? Hearing in session. Devil strides forward. As you know, Your Honor, Joe Persh is a target-rich environment. There's so much I could bring against him, and I have brought many things against him before you many times. Today, let me just choose from all kinds of things. Here's one that I was able to stir up in him this morning. Bitterness. Bitterness, Your Honor. And this one who calls himself someone who serves you is preparing to preach this morning in one of your places. Oh, I've caught him in bitterness. He's let some old memories rise and some offenses stir in his heart. I caught him in bitterness this morning and I've got all the receipts. Let me quote for the court your own law, Your Honor, from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Don't you think the devil knows the Bible? Oh, he does. I think he brings a copy to every hearing. Your Honor, may I quote Ephesians from your text, chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He's failed you here yet again. Therefore, I demand, according to the standards that you laid out eons ago, that Joe Persh be sent to hell afresh. The courtroom is silent. Father says, anything further? And the devil says, no. And the father says, anyone for the defense? And Jesus steps forward and says, Thank you, Your Honor, Jesus Christ the righteous, for the defense. Let me first begin by stipulating for the record that this accusation against Joe Persh is true. And in fact, the defendant has confessed. So yes, he is guilty. However, I would like to further eternally stipulate from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 which so states in the great eternal record 
that I was foreknown before the foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking about himself. I was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in this last time for his sake. I, the Lamb of God. Let it further be stipulated in the record that according to chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 24, I myself bore Joe's sins in my body on the tree. I bore it all, Lord. Here are the marks, and here are the stripes. Let me further stipulate that this was according to your counsel and mine before eternity rolled. And I'm more than willing to say that as your righteous son, according to Isaiah's great prophecy, I went ahead on Calvary and I bore his griefs. I bore Joe Persh's sorrows and I allowed myself to be stricken and smitten by you, Father, and afflicted. I was wounded for his transgressions. I was crushed for his iniquities, including this one. And upon me the chastisement that brings him peace fell. And with every one of these stripes, Joe is healed. Oh yes, Joe, like a sheep, had gone astray. He turned to his own way, and he will yet again. But Father, I testify before all of heaven that you laid upon me all of his iniquity. I rest my case. <clears throat> Gavel down. Father says, case dismissed. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, is my advocate in heaven. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, is your advocate in heaven. He fully knows all that you've done, and he fully died for all that you've done. And no voice can ever silence the greatness of the cross. And that's the last point. Even though the devil accuses, Jesus stands and advocates for you, and the words and wounds of Jesus always win. Never forget it, beloved. The words and wounds of Jesus always win. Even though today you and I struggle with sin, and this very hour our adversary may be accusing us before God the judge in that place in heaven, it'll always be case dismissed. <laughs> Until the great day that the accuser himself is put on trial. And he's cast into the lake of fire forever, and the courtroom is closed. Until then, my defense attorney, Jesus, he's on my retainer. And he's never lost a case. You think about it. He won't lose it for you either. Isn't that wonderful to know? Now, some of us haven't been believing that. We're under what we call condemnation because we're struggling with an area of our life. I asked you earlier, what do you think God does when you sin? Now you know. Some believers think he was angry with them. No, you know, 
God cannot be angry with you any longer. Did you know that? He can be grieved over your sin, but all of his anger was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what wrath is. And it was all propitiated. It was all taken. Some people as Christians believe God's going to punish them for certain dimensions of their life. No, he'll chasten you out of love to bring you into blessing and freedom, but he will never punish you in anger. That's my belief. You might differ. Upon him, the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. Some people go as far as to believe that God has rejected them, that he's ended his relationship with them. That is impossible, my friend, because you've been bought with a price, and that can never be undone. You're in Christ. You're in the Beloved. And when God gazes upon you, he sees you through his Son. Amen? You're in his righteousness. So what does God do when you sin? He looks to Jesus, the advocate. So should you.